Hello, hello. I'm glad to be with you today, Living Streams. We've got people all over the country and around the world. We've got like four families are in Ireland doing a special retreat with Young Life. We've got uh, people at the beaches, got those covered, and the mountains. Um, but I'm glad to be right here with you today, live and in person. I'm Mark Buckley, and um, we're going to be getting into the book of Job. The title of this message is The Key to Job's Superpower, The Fear of the Lord. And um, I also want to pray for our country as we begin. Uh, our War of Independence, 1776, was not the end. It was the beginning of a liberation and a struggle that has been going on to this very day. A hundred years later, we had a civil war, which was not the end. It was an ongoing struggle for racial equality and justice and righteousness. Um, a hundred years later, we had a Vietnam War, which was another struggle with uh, tyranny and communism, and that's not the end. We're in a unique time in our history, and I believe that this topic today is one of the key understandings that we need to incorporate because it encapsulates what our job is, what our responsibility is, what we need to contribute, not just for the struggle for our nation, but for the body of Christ, for the church. If the church understands unity, then the the society gets a revelation of the benefit of unity. If the church understands holiness and the fear of God, then the society can get a glimpse of the blessings that can come in the lives of people that live a holy life, that abide by the fear of God. If not, then we miss out. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to pray for this nation. We thank you for the United States for the freedom and the liberty that we've been given. But Lord God, we know that we're also in a struggle. We're in a political struggle, a racial struggle, a moral struggle. And we ask, Lord God, that you would equip us, that you'd give us wisdom and understanding, knowledge and insight, the fullness of the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we can declare your kingdom, your death, your resurrection, your glory, so that the world might believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. And may God raise up wise politicians as well and teach us how to vote. Okay. Um, in the book of Job, there are a lot of different themes. One of the themes is that there is an unseen adversary, Hashatan or Satan, who tries to destroy the lives of people. Another truth is that we have a good, loving father, and sometimes he allows the adversary to pummel and almost destroy the lives of people who love God. And those are perplexing dilemmas and realities. I, I was talking to John Youngstrom last night. He was our facility manager for a number of years and a real prayer warrior and a prophet. And he was driving with his wife from Virginia just last week, and he prayed before they left that God would protect their trailer they were pulling and their car and put angels in front and about, and they, they were going down the freeway, and all of a sudden they got a blowout, and the trailer began to spin out, and the truck began to roll four times over and over, and they landed in a grassy median, and there were cars all around, but they were okay, and, and they blew out at just the right spot. But they were shaken. 
They were shaken. And we get shaken. All of us from time to time get shaken. And there are forces that come against us that we don't fully comprehend. There's adversaries. Well, this truth that we're going to look at is first declared in the very first verse of Job, Job 1.1. And it's also a whole chapter, a theme in verse in chapter 28. In the land of Uz, Job 1.1, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. These were the things that made him blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Then the Lord said to Satan, in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I remember when I was a brand new believer, um, I went over to my friend Bill Salemi's house for dinner, and his mom was a great cook, and, and I started talking to Bill about Jesus for the very first time. And uh, he says to me, hey, Buck, are you one of those guys that fears God? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not one of them. Because in my mind, that meant narrow. That meant fearful. That meant, uh, I don't know what the heck it meant, but I just didn't think I wanted to be that, right? But now I am convinced that one of the most significant problems in the United States is a lack of the fear of God. And if it's a problem in our nation, it means it's a problem in the church. And what, what do I mean by that? Um, we had a million abortions last year. And even with the, the Supreme Court decision about Roe versus Wade, there'll be hundreds of thousands of abortions every year going forward because the states will make their own rules and a lot of the states are pretty liberal. You're not going to legislate away abortion. The only thing that's going to really slow it down is a deep understanding in the hearts of women that abortion is not the path to a more fulfilled life. We had over 100,000 people die of opioid overdoses last year. And, and Purdue Pharma that, that spread Oxycontin all over the country through doctors uh, got sued for billions of dollars. But the solution to the opioid crisis is not going to be stricter regulation, stronger border, and all that. It's going to be a revelation in the hearts of young men and women that the way to a fulfilled life is not through fentanyl, or oxycodone, or any of those other things, there is a deeper meaning to life than just sort of dulling your brain. We've had over 20,000 people killed through violence with guns last year. 20,000. Some pistols, some long rifles, many through AK-47s and AR-15s through mass shootings. And I think that's insanity for a society to allow that kind of access to weapons of mass destruction. However, the solution ultimately is going to be that young people will look at a gun like that and say, no, be, not because the cops are going to get me, but no, because that is not a path to making me a man. That is not a solution for the frustration that I'm feeling. 
We have thousands of young people now getting hormone replacement therapy and sex change operations. Young kids. And, and, and I think that's insanity. However, I don't feel called to preach against that kind of insanity. I feel called to declare to you that the fear of the Lord, knowing who God is, having a real relationship with Him, is the solution to the gender confusion of young people and the powerful temptations that grip all of us because we're men and women and we're in the flesh and we will be until we get to heaven. So what does the fear of the Lord mean? When I was a young guy, I'm going to give you two stories. When I was a young guy, I had a dad and I had seven younger brothers and sisters, and my dad worked super hard to provide for us. He worked two jobs a lot of the time. Uh, my parents cooked really good dinners, and the kids would come to the table, and they'd be fooling around and fighting with each other and spilling my, their milk. And every now and then, my dad would say, shut up. I don't want to hear another word out of you. Eat your dinner. And when he said it, we knew he meant it. And if you didn't believe he meant it, just keep fooling around and see what happens. Now, we didn't go around afraid of our dad. We didn't. But when he said it, we knew that he meant it. And when he meant it, we feared crossing that line. Our God has spoken to us through his word. He's given us the scripture. And for some reason, even Christians don't take it that seriously. And I don't get it. When I'm with somebody and they're just sort of casually cursing because they're frustrated, I'm like, don't you know the Word of God says don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth? Now, I'm not sitting here to be your judge. I'm just telling you that cursing is not the way to produce more grace and peace in your heart. The Word of God says it. I know what it's like to feel powerful temptations. I know what it's like to be immoral. I know what it's like to be depressed because I've been immoral. And I know when the Word of God says that fornicators and adulterers he will judge. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. That I have a choice. I can keep my marriage undefiled or I can find out firsthand experience what it means when he says fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And since I've watched people, and I watch a lot of people, my job is ministering to people, and I watch what happens to their lives, one of the ways I was convinced that Jesus Christ is actually alive, risen from the dead, and the forgiveness of sins is real, is when I watch what happens in the lives of people who stumble into a church, who are confused, heartbroken, disoriented in whatever ways, what happens in their life over the next few years when they believe the Word of God, when they receive Christ as their Lord, when they start to love their brothers and sisters, when they start to forgive the people that have hurt them, when they start to, to serve others and give and all the rest. I see their transformation. I see them become mature. I see their minds renewed. I see them build healthy relationships, and I, I see the blessing of God. And yet, I've also seen lots of guys, including pastors that I know, give in to temptation, 
think that, well, since God is forgiving and I need a little more excitement in my life and my marriage feels like it's sort of stagnant, I've seen what happens when they give in to those temptations and the forces of hell break out in their lives and that things begin to unravel. You don't have to learn everything by experience. Part of wisdom is knowing what to observe and how to interpret what you're observing. So here's, here's my other illustration, and then we'll get back into Job. A number of years ago, my friend Ben Snyder were on, and I were on a hunting trip, and we drove out to Bartlett Lake, and then we just kept going north for another hour and a half into the desert on this long, windy, dirt road. And we had a, a good day out there. We did our hunting. And then we had a men's meeting that night, so we're heading back in. We're driving back about 20 minutes uh, back on this dirt road, and we see a guy walking. So we pull over and say, hey, what's going on? Because, I mean, we are out in the boonies. We are not near anything. No water. It's just desert, hills, cactus, and heat. And the guy's like, oh, my car broke down. I'm on my way to Chicago, and I just decided to keep walking. It's like, dude, come on in. You know, we're going to take you with us because you cannot get to Chicago that way. I just trust me. You cannot get, I mean, you're going in the general direction, but you got another 100 miles of desert before you would have hit Highway 40 that crosses up by Flagstaff on the way to Albuquerque, chances are you're going to die. So he trusted us. He got in the car. We drove another 15 or so minutes. We saw his car that had broken down. We said we'd send somebody for his car. We brought him back to our men's ministry, prayed with him, and, and took care of the guy. So here's how this applies. I know that you want more fulfillment in your life, right? I know it. Most of us do. It's not wrong. It's good to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. It's good to have a passion for God and, and care about people and want Him to use your life. I know you want more. But if you choose to violate the Word of God to get where you think you want to go, you can't get there that way. You cannot get there through cursing, through drunkenness, through drugs, through immorality. You cannot get to the kingdom. You cannot connect with your Father in heaven. You cannot find fulfillment on that path. And, and this isn't somebody who's afraid talking. This is somebody, I've learned some things the hard way. And I've observed a lot over the last 50 years of following Jesus, and I still have the same passion to make my life significant. And I believe you do too, and that's why you're here. Okay, so let's look into... Um, well, the, the, here's, here's one other key thing in verse 9 and 10 before we get into Job 28 of chapter 1. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan's having this sparring match with God, and he's saying, the only reason Job really 
fears you is because you put this hedge of protection around him. His business is blessed. His family is blessed. His marriage is blessed. He's got all this good stuff. No wonder he loves you. And God says, okay, go ahead. And you know what happens. The forces of hell break out against Job. His business, even though he's the richest man in the world and he was diversified into camels and sheep and oxen and all the rest, they're all wiped out. And then his children, ten kids, seven boys, three daughters, they're all wiped out. And then his health, which had been good, sores break out, scabs and running. It was horrible. The guy was in incredible pain. And then his wife looks at him. She's devastated. She's lost everything except her health. She says to Job, just curse God and die. And Job chooses not to curse God because he knows he can't get from where he's at to where he wants to go on that path. As much as his heart is broken, as painful as those afflictions were, as much grief as is on him, he knows that the only way he's going to get from where he's at to where he hopes to be again someday is through the mercy of God. And I believe Job had a superpower, and the key to that superpower was his fear of God. So in chapter 28, here's what it says. It's a, a poem that describes men digging deep into the mountainside looking for gold, silver, lapis, luzia, and, and precious metals. How hard they worked to get that, and yet we've got something more valuable that's available to us. Job 28.1, there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the furthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet, far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks. That's a, a blue stone that can be made into uh, figurines. It can be made into jewelry. It, some people believe it has healing properties. Its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lions prowl there. People assault the flinty rocks with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rocks. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither can gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels. In other words, wisdom is more valuable than all the money 
all the treasures you can have because you can have a lot of money, you can have a lot of possessions, but if you don't have wisdom, your, your family isn't going to hold together. If you don't have wisdom, your friends aren't going to mean much to you. If you don't have wisdom, you're not building a house that's going to last. Without wisdom, none of those things are going to matter. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Death and destruction say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. So the guys dig deep. They work super hard. They sweat to get a treasure. The Lord says, there's a treasure that's much more valuable. It says in Proverbs 2 that, that the wise person is seeking that treasure. We seek wisdom. However, how do you find it? How do you connect with it? He's giving us the front door. The front door is the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It does not mean you go around afraid of God all the time. It does not mean that this one truth is the final destination either. It says in Proverbs 9.10, if you look over there, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of understanding. What does that mean? It means that once you start with wisdom, you grow into it. I was talking with Nathan, uh, who coordinates our worship and is doing such an awesome job, and he had been on vacation. Where did you go? I asked, he says, I went to Disneyland. Now, I didn't have time for a follow-up, but if I had asked him, did you go to Space Mountain? Did you go to the Matterhorn? Did you go to any of the shows? Did you go to Pirates of the Caribbean and all those other places? And he said, no. I said, well, what, do you, what did you do? Well, we went to Disneyland, we paid our money, brought my wife and my four kids, went through the door, we've been here, now, then we left. We'd say, well, you didn't really go to Disneyland. I mean, you technically did, but there is so much more to explore. There's so much more to experience. When he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom is the door to the kingdom of God, to the creator of the universe, the one who can make streets of gold, the one who can give us tongues as angels, the one who can impart healing gifts and grace, the one who says love is more important than any of those other things. The one who gave his son on the cross so that we could have forgiveness for our sins. The one who pours blessing and blessing, whether it's rainfall or provision or whatever, on the just and the unjust. He's our Father, and there's no limit to His majesty, 
And our relationship with him is an exploration of his glory and his majesty, and it's a sharing in that which makes him special. Through his divine promises, we partake of the divine nature, which is an awesome privilege. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, but it's a critical beginning. When I hear of believers like, oh, this, this guy and this gal, they really, they like each other. They, I think they're moved in together for a while to see how things work before they get married. I'm like, that's not the way you prepare for a good marriage, please. The fear of the Lord says, don't go there. There's another way to do it. And that means you learn to talk, you learn to pray, you learn to play, you find out the person's character before you invest the rest of your life in this relationship. The fear of the Lord is that the meek will inherit the earth. The whole earth belongs to us. I, I just, I talked to one couple just back from Rwanda. I, I talked to, uh, through text message to another guy who was over in England. My son just got back from Switzerland, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, and I'm like, these guys are inheriting the earth. It's so awesome. But if we steal, thieves will not inherit the kingdom, that you lose the very thing that God wants to give you as a gift, which is a really poor exchange. So we care about our country. We care about the issues that are facing our country. And we have a job to do as believers. And that is to shine the light of truth on believers and non-believers alike in love. Not as a hammer to bash them. Not pretending we've always done it right ourselves, But as an act of compassion and mercy, we need to love people enough to share the truth with them and to share our lives with them so that the truth will set them free, so that they don't have to learn the hard way all the time. So in the Bible, there's a lot of guys that have had superpowers. Daniel had superpowers. Daniel was able to interpret the dream of a king through a vision that he had never even heard what the dream was. And he spared his life and his friends' lives by telling Nebuchadnezzar, this despot who was threatening to kill him, what the guy's dream was. And the dream said, you're going to lose your kingdom, by the way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a superpower. They literally walked into the fiery furnace and survived. Even though they had told that despot that we will not bow to the idol made in your image. We will not, because that would be a sin against God. He supernaturally enabled them to survive. Samson was supernaturally strengthened so that he could kill up to a thousand Philistines in battle all by himself. It was an amazing thing. And as a matter of fact, he thought he was so supercharged and so empowered that it no longer mattered whether or not he was really obedient to the Lord. That was a secondary issue. And when Delilah pressed him, he told her, yeah, my, the strength is in my hair. I wasn't supposed to get it cut. She cuts it. They capture him. They put his eyes out. And unfortunately, that's what's happened to a lot of believers. A lot of believers have had their spiritual eyes put out. Their light is not shining. They're not perceiving the will and purpose and majesty of God. 
Well, the good news about Samson is when his hair began to grow out and he called on the name of the Lord, resurrection power came into his life and he was able to once again do what God wanted him to do, which was to battle the Philistines. You and I have our own Philistines to fight. We don't fight flesh and blood. We fight principalities and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness that destroy people. Job, once all the arguments were over, came face to face with the Lord. His friends had given him bad counsel. They said, it's because you sinned that you got into this trouble. I walked into a hospital room one time, and uh, my, my, the pastor who was with me and I were told to go visit a guy before he died. He was dying of cancer. So we go into this hospital room, and immediately the guy says to us, what are you guys, Job's friends? And I'm like, dude, sorry, man, I just met you, you know. Um, but he thought because we weren't rejoicing, we were Job's friends that were just there to tell him what he had done wrong. We were there in Jesus' name to try and share mercy. But Job's friends were the, pointing out what he had done wrong. It does not take wisdom to point out what somebody has done wrong. We've all done plenty of wrong things. Wisdom is the ability to understand how you get from where you are to where you need to go. And where people need to go is into the peace and joy and righteousness of the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the pain of life gets really, really tough, then it's very tempting to get mad at the God who you know let it happen. Even if it's Satan was the cause or some insane person was the cause, you know that God for some reason let it happen and that makes you really mad. I've observed many people when they're mad at God, when they're disappointed, when they're in heartache, make some bad decisions. And one of the things that the book of Job teaches us is just because things are bad doesn't mean they can't get worse. Right? Just because you lost your business doesn't mean everything's going to be wonderful with your family. Just because you lost your business and family doesn't mean your health is going to be good. Things can get worse. And what breaks my heart is when I see people who have gone through something really bad make decisions that make things worse. Now, in Job's case, he did nothing to go from bad to worse to even worse. However, his superpower was that he continued to fear God, and because he feared God, when the Lord's time was right, he revealed himself, he restored Job. And Job lives to this day as an example to all of us who suffer from unseen forces, all of us who fall short, all of us who have marriage struggles, business struggles, Challenges with our kids. He lives as an example that it ain't over. It's a dark, dark chapter, but it isn't over till the one who writes his word on our heart says, Come, 
My good and faithful servant, come and be with me. And that's what he's going to say to you if you stay focused on him. Amen.